Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper, dated Wednesday, February the 8th, and I'm your reader, Kevin Boucher. Headline, City Council Approves Hess Foundation's Lease of Riverside Sports Complex. And this article was written by reporter Dolly Butts. The Sioux City Council unanimously voted this past Monday to award a lease agreement to the Hess Foundation for the rental of Riverside Recreational Sports Complex, the nonprofit organization, which is affiliated with the Arena Sports Academy, is currently renting Long Lines Family Rec Center second floor from the city, but the facility's climbing wall and party room are not included in the lease. I think that I speak for everyone when I say that I have far too many gray hairs from this entire ordeal, and that is a quote from Councilman Matthew O'Kane, who continued, This was not a great experience, and I really hope that all the organizations, not just these two that are sitting in this room, can work together, because our youth are suffering if we're not able to find a common ground. In October of 2022, the City Council voted to delete the Hess Foundation's request to rent Riverside Recreational Sports Complex from its consent agenda to allow city staff to give them time to make changes to the lease agreement. But then in December, city staff asked the City Council to approve a resolution accepting a lease agreement from Westside Little League to rent the complex. That recommendation came after a review team evaluated proposals from both the Hess Foundation and the Westside Little League and ultimately selected Westside Little League to lease the complex. That was in December. During a council meeting on December 5th, Sioux City leaders expressed hope that Westside Little League and the Hess Foundation could create a partnership that could be a game changer for children playing youth sports in the community. And at the time, the council opted to defer a vote on the matter so that those two entities could continue discussions. After city staff met with the Hess Foundation and Westside Little League on January 6, a preliminary schedule was created in accordance with both entities' registration numbers. The Hess Foundation would need all six Riverside Complex fields, along with fields at other locations, for their softball league program. That's according to city documents. And based on field utilization, city staff recommended that the council award a lease agreement to the Hess Foundation. Dustin Cooper, the executive director of the arena, told the council on Monday that Westside Little League will be allowed to use the fields for softball. The entire time I've said that we will all do that free of charge, no rent, he said. And last week I actually sent an email to all of the Little League presidents offering up field space for interleague play. Sioux City Parks and Recreation Director Matt Salvatore said the lease contains language that says the Hess Foundation agrees to sublease to Westside Little League Monday through Thursday during the summer for softball games, 
of course subject to availability of the fields based on scheduled activities and appropriate insurance. And more uh, news from Monday night City Council meeting. The headline for this story, City Council pushes back a vote on agreement with Gill Hauling for waste collection and recycling. And this article was written by reporter Dolly Butts. The Sioux City Council on Monday deferred a vote on a resolution that would approve a 10-year agreement between the city and Gill Hauling Incorporated for solid waste collection, recycling, and disposal services. The vote for a one-week deferral was unanimous. Council members said they want to hear more public input on the proposed resolution. And this item is expected to be back on the council's agenda on February the 13th. I'm not for a 10-year contract with anybody, Mayor Bob Scott said. We don't do 10-year contracts with anybody, and I don't even understand where this came about. The current agreement that's in place now, which expires in June of this year, allowed gill hauling to increase rates by 2% annually through the remainder of the contract. Now, the new agreement, per the recommendation of the city's solid waste consultant, contains a floor consumer price index adjustment of 3% to a ceiling consumer price index adjustment of 5% for the length of the agreement, which expires June 30th. Roger Benz, the city's environmental services program and development manager, told the city council that Gill Hauling would like to purchase six new solid waste trucks and new garbage and recycling totes for the entire city. We're looking at about a $4.5 million investment into the new carts for the city and then as well as about a $3 million investment for six new automated side loaders. And that is an exact quote from Sean McDowell, who was with Gil Hauling. He continued, With the staffing challenges over the past couple of years, we've done about 25% market wage adjustments to where we're getting our folks paid where they should be paid more fairly. And so by creating the operational efficiencies with the automated trucks is well as being able to spread out that capital cost over the last 10 years, as opposed to five or seven, we're able to give a more favorable rate. Scott remarked that buying all new carts or totes seems like, quote, a waste of money. McDowell noted that many of them dated back to 1994. He said about a thousand carts with broken lids are being replaced on a monthly basis. A useful time frame on these carts is 15 to 18 years, and over half of those are 30 years old or older, he said. Now, in addition to rate adjustments, the agreement also provides for low-volume users to downsize to a smaller container for cost savings while allowing for larger recycling carts at no additional cost. The agreement also recommends that recycling collection take place every other week to keep their costs down. 
Mayor Pro Tem Dan Moore expressed concerns about recycling potentially being picked up every week. Now, I understand that is a cost-saving measure, but are we going to lose interest in recycling? I just have that concern, he said. Once you start that, you probably can't go back to once a week. Other features of the agreement which were discussed at Monday night City Council meeting include continued management of the city's convenience center, including the household hazardous materials operation. Gil Holling agrees to place and service roll-offs for high-density residential recycling drop-off locations. All service locations within the agreement will receive new solid waste and recycling containers for a unified look throughout the city and for safe and efficient collections. The Sioux City Council has the option to deny the agreement and request that solid waste collection, recycling, and disposal services be bid out. In the headline for this next article, a Scranton family is named the top commercial producer in the state of Iowa. Justin and Lacey Robbins are busy people, but they're perfectly willing to let the grass grow under their feet because that grass is part of a successful system the family has implemented for many years on their farm in Greene County, Iowa. Justin, Lacey, and their son McKinley were named the 2022 Commercial Producers of the Year by the Iowa Cattlemen's Association. They have around 200 cows on their west-central Iowa farm, a mixture of Angus and crossbred cattle. They finish about 75 head yearly with other calves sold after weaning. They use performance records, including identification of cows and calves, as well as birth, weaning, and yearling weights. Carcass data is also used to uh, utilize to continue to improve on their genetics. And in order to manage all of this data, the farm has invested in electronic animal identification. And the family uses all of this information to select genetics, including herd bulls as well. The Robbins family is part of a cooperator herd with two ranches in Oregon and Missouri, and they primarily purchase bulls from those ranches. The family also raises their own bulls and has hosted seed stock sales on the farm in addition to consigning bulls to the ICA's Bull and Heifer Evaluation Program in the past. We use AI a lot, not only for genetics, but to improve time management. Justin says adding that improved sire selection has helped boost their profits. Genetic selection is also important when it comes to females. The family has more than a decade of records to use in an aid to selection. Some of the key traits are disposition as well as structural soundness like good feet and udders. In addition to AI, embryo transfer is used to produce seed stock for their own operation as well as their cooperator ranches, the family calves in the spring and in the fall. Calving occurs twice each year including spring and fall. 
They use rotational grazing to make sure that the cattle have plenty of fresh grass. Corn stalks, bean stubble, and cover crops are also grazed as well. The family has also developed a very successful beef and pork marketing program selling individual packages nation, uh, nationwide. We sold beef for a number of years, but started selling nationwide in 2019, Justin says. We have had people drive here to Iowa from New Mexico to buy a whole beef and a hog. They are also busy off the farm since taking part in the Iowa Cattlemen's Leadership Program in 2014. They've been active members of the organization, serving in many leadership and in volunteer roles as well. And the headline for this next article, Sioux City Fighter is eyeing a national qualifier and dreams of a spot on the USA Olympic boxing team. And this uh, article was written by Sioux City reporter Earl Horlick. It's easy to see why Zeke Castro was given the nickname Lightning. The 18-year-old Sioux City native is known for his rapid-fire jabs while sparring and a ready smile when he's outside the boxing ring. And nowadays, Castro is in training mode. After all, he is prepping for a battle at the Golden Gloves in Omaha, which will take place on February the 15th. And more significantly, he will also be more, one of the more than 1,000 boxers competing in the USA Boxing National Qualifier. And that'll take place March 18th through the 25th in Detroit. The National Qualifier is the first step towards a possible spot on the USA Olympic team trials for boxers, said Castro. He continues being in the Olympics has always been a dream of mine, which is a pretty lofty goal for the 125-pound fighter who currently has a record of 13 wins and only two losses. Luckily, Castro has Mike Farley in his corner. Farley, along with his cousin Dan Farley, coaches at Siouxland Junior Boxing Club, a which is located at 421 Pierce Street, and it's a gymnasium geared towards youths wanting to learn more about the sweet science. Zeke has a lot of heart, but he also has a good head on his shoulders, Farley said. The best boxers develop a strategy, and Zeke is versatile, versatile enough to keep any opponent on his toes. Just a few weeks ago, Castro's opponent was his own dad. Castro's father, Zeke Castro Jr., is a former fighter, and so was his grandfather, Zeke Castro Sr. Never get into the ring with your son thinking he'll go easy on you, Zeke Castro Jr. said. <laughs> My nose is still a bit swollen. Castro says he started boxing at age eight, but said that my dad wanted to wear boxing gloves as I got out of the crib. And with his entire future ahead of him, Zeke Castro isn't afraid of dreaming big. This year I'm going to Detroit, he said. And in 2024, who knows, maybe Paris 
which is the site of the next Summer Olympic Games. And the headline for this next story from the Sioux City Journal, Judge Issues a Reminder of the Need for Timely Handling of Committal Requests. And this one is written by reporter Nick Hytrek. The chief judge in Northwest Iowa's State Judicial District has issued a reminder to court workers and sheriffs to deal with mental health committal requests and orders as timely as possible. It was filed on January the 12th and directed to the clerk of court staffs and sheriffs in the 16 counties of Iowa's 3rd Judicial District. The order was filed on the one-year anniversary of the death of Michael Meredith, a Sergeant Bluff man who was fatally shot by a Woodbury County Sheriff's deputy after rushing him and striking him with a tire iron. Meredith had been hallucinating much of the day and was experiencing a mental health crisis. His mother and an uncle had filed an application for a court-ordered involuntary committal about 15 minutes before the Woodbury County Clerk of Court's office was to close at 4.30 p.m., but they said that it wouldn't be reviewed until the following day. Meredith was shot less than two hours later after authorities responded to a call of a possible burglary in progress in a Sergeant Bluff Mobile home park, and his family believes the incident was a suicide, in which he took actions that forced the deputy to respond with lethal action. After the shooting, Todd said, there were questions why the committal request wasn't processed the same day, because judges were still at work in the courthouse. If a request is filed just before closing time, it should be reviewed and, if granted, sent to the sheriff's office so officers can attempt to locate the individual and transport them to a hospital. Though applications aren't often filed late in that day, the filing time should not matter. A lot of times it's routine, Todd said. Other times stuff comes in at 4.15 and we just have to deal with it. In his order, Todd cited Iowa Code and emphasized its wording that court workers should immediately notify a judge or a magistrate when an application for a mental health or substance abuse committal is filed and that upon its approval, the sheriff's office is required to attempt immediate service of the order. An involuntary committal is often a family's last resort to get emergency mental health treatment for a loved one who is refusing to seek help or voluntarily go to a hospital. Law enforcement officers may take a person in crisis for an emergency hospitalization and state law allows doctors to hold the person at the hospital for up to 12 hours. Now, if the doctors believe this person needs extended care, but he or she doesn't want to stay at the hospital, then they can seek a 48-hour hold from the judge. These two hold options can cover times when the courthouse is closed at night, on weekends when families would be unable to file for a court-ordered commissal, or committal, Todd said. 
expanding the court's business hours to provide greater opportunity to file committal applications would require hiring more workers or paying overtime, costs that cannot be covered in the state's in the current state's budget. Cost and manpower issues are too extreme to accommodate that, Todd said. And the headline, Omaha woman arrested in explosion and shoplifting incident at Sioux City Shields. And this article was written by reporter Dolly Butts. Jessica Katz, 40 years old, was arrested Thursday on charges of first-degree arson, a Class B felony, second-degree criminal mischief, a Class D felony, and fourth-degree theft, which is a serious misdemeanor. According to a criminal complaint filed in Woodbury County District Court, Katz and another woman entered Shields, which is located at 4400 Sargent Road, at 7.03 p.m. on October the 26th. The women grabbed a number of items from various departments in the store, including a dog collar and harnesses, three t-shirts, two pair of jogger pants, and a pair of Air Jordan shoes. At 7.30 p.m., the other woman left the store and went out to a a Silver Mercury Mariner that was parked in the parking lot. After she returned to the store, the complaint stated that the woman grabbed a BB gun and gave it to Katz. The two women then separated, with Katz going to the front display where she began organizing store merchandise and the other woman going to the rear section of the store. Then the other woman removed a lighter and a small device with a fuse from the pocket of her hooded sweatshirt. She lit the fuse on fire and tossed the device into a shelf before walking away, according to the complaint. And a short time later, the device exploded, damaging shelving and merchandise as well. Dozens of employees and dozens more customers were in the store at the time of the explosion, according to the complaint. Katz exited the store carrying the merchandise that she and the other women had collected, and the police complaint stated that they did not pay for the merchandise before leaving the store. The stolen items had a value of $562.97, according to the complaint. Katz is being held in the Woodbury County Jail on $50,000 bond. And the headline for this next article, Bettendorf Man Sues John Deere, Claiming Retaliation for Safety Concerns. And this article was written by reporter Gretchen Teske. A former John Deere employee is suing the company, saying that he was fired in retaliation for raising safety concerns over electric batteries. Daniel White of Bedendorf claims he was fired for informing management about alleged safety risks related to batteries for autonomous tractors and other equipment. He was the chief of electrification of small ag and turf, according to the suit, and he started working for John Deere in Moline in February of 2022. 
A John Deere spokesman did not immediately respond Monday to a request for comment. White had 24 years of experience, the lawsuit says, and his job was to help develop an autonomous, battery-powered tractor farm product. On the week of June 20th of 2022, he traveled to Kreisel Electric Incorporated, which is an Austrian company that makes electric batteries. Deere secured a majority ownership of Kreisel early last year. But during the trip, White says that he saw multiple safety risks, the complaint states. One concern was immersion cooling of Kreisel's electric batteries, which contain no insulation between the cells and the coolant, he says. And White said that he was concerned that would lead to an electric shock, either that or a chemical reaction or even an explosion. He took his complaints to several leadership personnel at Deere and at Chrysler, he said, where they were ignored. Shortly after his visit to Chrysler, White met with John Deere's director of electric powertrain and the CEO of Chrysler Electric. The complaint says the Deere employees and suppliers handling the batteries did not know about the safety concerns, but the lawsuit also alleges Deer leadership was aware only because not only because White informed them, but because there had been a failure in a competitor's battery, and it was plausible that it could happen again, according to his claim. Instead, leadership for both companies demanded that Chrysler batteries be used in the development of autonomous equipment without additional testing. White's lawsuit indicates that he spoke with various company leaders in a range of roles, urging them to perform testing on the batteries, including what could happen in the event of foreseeable misuse, which he categorized as standard testing criteria. In October, when he sent a proposal for battery testing to a global engineering manager, White says he was terminated on November the 1st. In the lawsuit, it says that John Deere terminated White because of his reports and complaints of serious safety concerns with the electric batteries that were to be used in the power equipment that White's team was ultimately to produce. The lawsuit also claims that White's termination was a clear violation of Illinois law and official public policy of the state of Illinois. He is seeking compensation in the lawsuit. And the headline for this next article, written by the Des Moines Bureau of the newspaper, Iowa House advances a fix to fix a property tax rate error. Lawmakers in Iowa continue to advance a proposal to fix a state error that has left property taxpayers on the hook for higher bills than expected, but could leave local governments short millions in expected revenue. A House Ways and Means subcommittee on Monday advanced Senate File 181 for a hearing by the full committee. 
panel of lawmakers heard from representatives from Iowa's cities and counties and community colleges who urged lawmakers to delay for a year changing the residential property tax rollback rate to allow local governments more time to make adjustments to absorb the financial blow or alternatively replace the property tax revenue that local governments will lose with one-time state dollars. Subcommittee member Representative David Jacoby, a Democrat of Coralville, said that he planned to introduce an amendment to use $127 million from the state's more than $2 billion taxpayer trust fund to temporarily make cities and counties and other local taxing entities whole. But officials with various cities, counties, community colleges argued that local governments needed more time to plan for the reduced revenues. While avoiding cuts to public safety, which accounts for the bulk of city and county budgets and other essential services in the coming year. Cedar Rapids City Manager Jeff Pomerant said in an email on Monday to the city council and department heads that the Senate bill would cost his city approximately $2.5 million. Now, while the House debates its version of legislation to fix the state's error, Pomerant said the city would postpone its budget meeting initially scheduled for Tuesday because, quote, we do not know exactly how a final bill will impact the budget. And he said the city would reschedule the budget session with the council, with the council as soon as the bill is finalized. In an advisory issued on Monday, Sands said that Iowa law prohibits eligible low-income home energy assistance program customers from being disconnected from electricity or natural gas supplies from November through April, regardless of temperature. The federally funded program is designed to help low-income households pay for their heating needs. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper, dated Wednesday, February the 8th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now, let's turn to today's obituaries. Janet L. Haug, 86, of Elk Point, South Dakota, died on February the 2nd at the Pioneer Memorial Nursing Home in Viborg. Hoffmeister Jones Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. She is survived by her daughter Jeannie Marie and son-in-law Wayne Bossman of Parker, South Dakota, sister Rita Edwin of Vermilion, South Dakota, and nieces and nephews. She was preceded in death by her parents, husband James, brother John and his wife Nancy Stroh, and brother-in-law Larry Item. Inez A. Hyen, 90, of Lamar's, Iowa, died on Thursday, February the 2nd, and the services will be held February the 10th at St. John's Lutheran Church in Lamar's, Iowa. The Moore Johnson Funeral Home in Lamar's is in charge of arrangements. Waylon Keith Hicks, Jr. of Cherokee, Iowa, was just seven days short of 93 years old 
when he passed away on Friday, January 27th in Marcus, Iowa. Services will be held at 10.30 in the morning on Saturday, February the 18th at the Memorial Presbyterian Church in Cherokee. Military rites will be performed by the Cherokee American Legion. The funeral is, uh, or uh, the arrangements are done by Booth Funeral Home. He was known within his family as Poco, and he was born on February the 3rd, 1930, in the Gorgas Hospital in the Panama Canal Zone to U.S. Navy Lieutenant J.G. Waylon Keith Hicks and his wife, Esther Gertrude Hicks. Waylon attended Hunt Elementary School in North Junior High School, and he graduated with honors from Central High School in the June class of 1947. He attended Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota, and then transferred to the University of Iowa. Following a tour of duty with the Army during the Korean War, he returned to the University of Iowa and obtained a Bachelor of Science degree in civil engineering. He was employed by the United States Gypsum Company at their production facility in Fort Dodge, Iowa, and then later in that company's corporate headquarters in Chicago. In 1959, he partnered with Tom Grundman to purchase the assets of the Osterling Construction Company of Cherokee, and he formed his own business, the Grundman Hicks Construction Company. On July 1st, or July 2nd, 1961, Wayland married Donna Marie Clayton in Sioux City. Their union was blessed with one son, Dyke Hicks, now an engineer and consultant, residing in Ames, Iowa. Aside from his business interests, Wayland enjoyed genealogy, gardening, and reading. His computerized genealogy program includes several thousand extended family members and ancestors, with the first, the earliest proven, being a gentleman by the name of James Smallwood, a paternal seventh great grandfather who was born in England in 19, born in England in 1639. He arrived in Maryland in 1664, and he died in Charles County, Maryland in 1714, one of his ancestors. Wayland is survived by his wife Donna, son Dyke Hicks, and his wife Cindy of Ames, two Team Hicks members, Sheehan Flores and Damian Carter, both of Ames, two granddaughters, Dr. Audra Stollard of Tacoma, Washington, and Kristen Stollard of Richmond, Virginia, Brother Forrest Hicks and his wife Sydney of Dallas, Texas. Sister-in-law Karen Sikaski and her husband Bob of Amherst, Virginia. Brother-in-law David Clayton and his wife Carol of Mason City, Iowa. Nieces and nephews Barbara Swanson, Robert Hicks, Nancy Stone, and Alexander Hicks. He was preceded in death by his parents, Brother Jerry Hicks, Jerry's wife, Joan Hicks, and niece, Kathy Barrick. And the family requests memorials be made to Wayland, in Wayland's name to Cherokee Regional Hospice 
Hardland Memorial Fund, Memorial Presbyterian Church Foundation, the Cherokee Fire Department, and the Marcus Fire Department. Sarah E. Perley Jorstad of Sioux City, 87 years old, died on Thursday, February the 2nd. Funeral services February the 13th at 10.30 in the morning at Holy Cross Parish, Blessed Sacrament Church. Visitation is one hour prior to service time at the church. Marilis Irene Comers of Lamar's, Iowa, 79, died on Tuesday, January the 24th. Private family services will be held at a later date. Arrangements are with Myra Johnson Funeral Home in Lamar's. Terrence Lee Commonhoke of Sioux City, 84 years old, passed away after a long illness on Friday, February the 3rd, with his loving wife of 59 years by his side. Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel is in charge of arrangements. He was born April 7, 1938, to Harry and Ruth Cromenhoek in Sioux City. After high school, he worked for the Great Northern Railroad and then joined the Navy Reserve. He joined the Sioux City Fire Department in 1966. He was also an EMT, and he taught CPR classes at Western Iowa Tech. He retired as a captain of the Sioux City Fire Department in 1988 due to a job-related injury. He then spent a short time as a car and truck salesman for Sioux City Team Ford. Terry met the love of his life, Francis E. Van Renz, in 1962 with a cast on his leg and a puppy under his arm. They got married on June 29, 1963. To this union, two children were born, Matthew and Jennifer. Terry was a devoted husband and a father, coaching both Little League and softball, never missing a single one of his kids' games. Terry is survived by his beloved wife of 59 years, Franny, son Matt and Kathy Cromenhack of Lamar's, Iowa, daughter Jennifer and Terry Svenston of Sioux City, grandchildren Shaley Barreras, Lindsay Barreras, Autumn Svenson, and Noah Cromenhoek, and step-grandchildren Nicole Taunter, Michael Mack, Austin Cromenhoek, Nick Svensson, and Austin Svensson. He is also survived by five great-grandchildren, many nieces and nephews, brothers Lauren and LaVon Cromenhack of Lamars, Harry and Mary Ann Cromenhack of South Sioux City, and Dave and Carol Cromenhack of Sergeant Bluff, Iowa, and stepsister Kathy Scholl of Sioux City. Terry was preceded in death by his father, Harry, mother, Ruth, and stepfather, Jim Kelly. The family would like to thank the wonderful staff at Bickford Cottage Memory Loss of Sioux City and Hospice of Siouxland. The family suggests memorials may be sent to the First Lutheran Church. 
Thomas Henry Malloy of New River, Arizona, but formerly of Sioux City, 86, passed away peacefully on January the 13th at his home in New River. Christy Smith Funeral Homes, the Larkin Chapel, is in charge of arrangements. Tom was born March 30, 1936, in Sioux City, Iowa, the only child born to Gertrude Susan Kiefer and Harry Raymond Malloy. Tom attended Blessed Sacrament School, and he graduated from Healand High School. After he graduated, Tom enlisted in the United States Army, where he received an honorable discharge due to medical reasons. Tom attended the University of Omaha, Nebraska, and received a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration. Tom lived in Wayne, Nebraska, and worked for GMAC. And in 1970, Tom moved to Laurel, Nebraska, and became an international harvester dealer. He owned and operated Malloy Incorporated. Tom's mother, Gertrude, joined him, and when her health started to fail, she entered a nursing home in Sioux City. Tom sold the business, moved to Richland, South Dakota, and farmed to be closer to his mother. Tom retired from farming and moved to Sioux City. He is survived by Linda Tucker, Brian, Betsy, Caden, and Weston Shear, Sabrina, and Calvin Tucker. Tom was preceded in death by his parents. And the family would like to thank Hospice of the Valley, Phoenix, Arizona, for their love, compassionate care, and guidance. In lieu of flowers, the family requests memorials may be directed to the Hospice of the Valley, or St. Jude's. Don Leroy, Leroy Rose of Lyons, Nebraska, 88, died on Tuesday, January the 31st. The Gosler Funeral Home Chapel in Anawa, Iowa, is in charge of arrangements. Beloved Father Keith Lyle Saunders, 90, joined our Lord on Wednesday, February the 1st, his spark for life and eternal sense of adventure will be deeply missed, but will live on through the legacy of his family. Keith will be laid to rest in Chandler, Arizona, in the presence of his dear wife and family. He proudly served his country when he joined the Air Force during the Korean conflict, loading munitions for air support. He returned to Iowa, where he became a crew member on a Missouri riverboat. Keith and his wife, Nettie, had a lifetime of loyalty and dedication for 71 years with three children, 12 great-grandchildren, 18 great-grandchildren, and one great-great-grandchild. With Nettie by his side, Keith embarked in a life of service to his country and communities. Keith and Nettie continued their sense of adventure. When they developed real estate opportunities, they traveled the country and they spent time with family all across the country. He is survived by the love of his life, Nettie Jane Sanders, children Renee Kenny and Charles, deceased, Timothy Sanders and Lisa, and Patty Bleal and Jeff. 
He is also survived by grandchildren, Amanda Dessel and Alan, Matthew Kenny and Delana, Dali Galuzzi and Aaron, Andrew Saunders and Sherry, Ty Saunders and Maya Debusk and Brady, Jacqueline Saunders and Zach Classy, Cole Saunders, Joe Bleal and Carla, Bo Bleal, Billy Joe Keith and Jason, Bobby Joe Keenan and Jason, Great Grandchildren, Gracie Dessel, Strand Dessel, Trig Dessel, Charlie Dessel, Kason Kenny, Kelsey Kenny, Sienna Galuzzi, Noel Galuzzi, Jack Saunders, J.C. Bleal, Bailey Bleal, Briley Bleal, Sierra Joe Casterton and Garrett, and Slade Keith, Savannah Keith, Southern Keith, Dakota Keenan, Dallas Keenan, and great great grandchild Briggs Casterton. Paul Bearers will be his grandsons Matthew, Andrew, Ty, Cole, Joe, and Bo. Leo H. Stuce of Hinton, Iowa, 72, died on Thursday, February the 2nd. Services will take place on February the 9th at 2 p.m. at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Visitation is one hour prior to service time at the funeral home. Mary Pat Thompson, 69, of Sioux City, passed away on February the 2nd at a Sioux City hospital following a brief battle with lung cancer. Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel is in charge of arrangements. Mary Pat worked at Hair by Rick for several years and then retired from the Sioux City Community School District after working at West High School for 25 years. She enjoyed reading, crocheting, and swimming, but most of all, spending time with her grandchildren. And she is survived by her husband, Phil, of Sioux City, daughter Courtney Malone and Dennis of Tempe, Arizona, son Nicholas Thompson of Sioux City, three grandchildren, Lauren, Molly, and Aaron Malone, four sisters, Jody Kentop and Nick of Omaha, Nebraska, Nancy Wiggs of Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Lori Meyer and Dale of Sioux City, and Sarah Albrecht of Carroll, Iowa. She is also survived by brother Mark O'Neill and Dawn of Sioux City, and several nieces and nephews. Mary Pat was preceded in death by her parents, Jean and Rosie, niece Melissa Grossman, nephew Colin Kentop, and brother-in-law Dean Albrecht. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the June E. Nyland Cancer Center or the Lung Cancer Research Foundation. And now turning to the opinion page of the Sioux City Journal newspaper. Now this opinion piece that I'm about to read was written by the editorial board of the Sioux City Journal. Do you get the feeling that some Iowa legislators hated high school? Why else would they be so determined to derail an education system that was once hailed as the best in the country? 
In addition to their ill-advised private school voucher program, they've been talking about book banning, something we haven't even considered since the 1950s. Politicians talk about change as if it's a bad thing. The Internet alone has revolutionized what gets taught, what's valued in the workplace, and what challenges that we face. The Leave it to Beaver lifestyle that the governor and others want to rekindle can't exist in our society. And this next letter to the editor says, Ticket or toe those people who ignore snow emergencies. Snow emergency. Please define this. We residents on 6th and Court Street did what they said to do. We moved our cars to the odd and even side. Well, most of us. All but two cars. I contacted the Sioux City Police Department about the cars and was informed those cars would be ticketed and then towed at the owner's expense. I was happy with that statement. That's what should happen. Sioux City Police Department said that they send a unit out to handle this problem. Because it is a problem, folks. Tenants who ignore snow emergency warnings make it a pain for all of us. They need to pay for their total disregard. It's only right since the rest of us moved our cars. Next snowfall, we've all decided not to shovel our walks or move our cars. Nothing happens anyway, right? And it's time the city and police department enforce snow emergencies. And that letter to the editor was written by Michael Johnson of Sioux City. And this next letter to the editor says, SNAP and Medicare bills still need some work. HF3 is currently an Iowa bill about SNAP and Medicaid that needs some work. Share your stories with lawmakers. As an Iowa constituent, I oppose limiting access to public assistance like SNAP with restrictive measures like asset testing involving children's savings account to a family's second car. I am in favor in funding for double-up food bucks so recipients can access fresh fruits and vegetables that are often higher priced and beyond food budgets. I believe it should be a standalone bill that shows compassion and commitment to serve those in our population that struggle to afford proper nutrition. Making the double-up food bucks contingent upon being granted a waiver to restrict SNAP purchases when the USDA has never granted this type of waiver is a backhanded way to load off a bill that has too many undesirables within it. You see, I believe that placing a minuscule dollar amount on asset limits for SNAP recipients is a cookie-cutter approach that sets many of those recipients up for failure. And this next letter to the editor, our trip to Sioux City left a bad taste. We recently made a trip to Sioux City for a funeral. My niece's husband was excited to see where we grew up and to see Sioux City for the first time. Sadly, though, when we returned home, he received two $100 tickets in the mail for making an illegal right turn on red 
at the same light. It was obvious he didn't see a sign or he wouldn't have made the same mistake twice. We were reminiscing and telling him that Sioux City used to be called Sewer City because of the smell. Sadly, it may not only be leaving a bad taste with people and a bad smell, but a bad taste in their mouths as well. And that letter to the editor was written by Crystal Gorder of Frederick, Colorado. And turning now to sports, in women's college basketball, Clark and Hawkeyes take care of business. Iowa women's basketball team beat Penn State 95-51. Athletes Caitlin Clark and Iowa women's basketball team and her teammates took care of business on Sunday, ignoring a more than three-hour delay in their flight Saturday that led to a late arrival and the cancellation of shoot-around plans. The sixth-ranked Hawkeyes steamrolled Penn State 95 to 51 at the Bryce Jordan Center. Clark uh, Clark recorded the ninth triple double of her career as Iowa won its eighth straight game, finishing with 23 points, 10 rebounds, and 14 assists. The juniors' nine triple double equals the second most in NCAA women's basketball history. The Hawkeyes are 19-4 overall and 11-1 in conference play. On the men's side, the Iowa men's basketball team uh, beat the University of Illinois this past Saturday. Final score, 81-79. And one thing about the basketball game to Saturday's scene at Carver-Hawkeye Arena proved a point that Fran McCaffrey has been pounding home for several years. He says Saturday afternoon games create fan-friendly environments. The sellout crowd of 15,056 and the energy it brought demonstrated that Saturday afternoon time slots should not be only reserved for the elites in the Big Ten. The 40-year-old arena was as loud as it has ever been as the Border rivals battle, trading leads, fighting for a victory in an atmosphere that rivaled those that were the norm. In the late 1980s, when Big Ten basketball was about as good as it's ever been. And looking at the standings, the Iowa basketball teams, they're in sixth place in the Big Ten Conference behind Purdue, Rutgers, Indiana, Illinois, Northwestern, and Maryland. They're 7-5 and five in conference play and 15 and 8 overall. They're on a three game winning streak. Well, that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper for Wednesday, February the 8th. I'm your reader, Kevin Boucher. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>